and welcome back. We are your hosts. I'm Hannah. And I'm Lexi. And you are listening to Wild About Conservation. If you're new here, welcome. This is the podcast where we explore the world of conservation through discussions with our very knowledgeable guests. And this season focuses on the coastal environment, from rivers through to estuaries and back out to our ocean. We have it all this season. This week, we are joined by the wonderful Zoe Cox. Zoe has always had a passion for animals and knew in some way that she wanted to help preserve the planet in the future. Zoe has an MSc in ecology and conservation with a background in maths too. She has worked in the Maldives, the Caribbean and Oman, working in science communication, turtle rehabilitation, coral restoration and alongside government ministries and agencies. Join us this week as we take a dive into sea turtles and their rehabilitation, the project Zoe has worked on and the importance of education. We round up the episode with an important lesson of what Zoe has learned during her time as a conservationist. We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. Please remember to leave a review, get in touch on social media, and if you would like to support us creators, we do have a Patreon. Check out all of the links in the show notes on our website or the description down below. Enjoy! Hi, thank you for chatting to us today. Firstly, can you tell us your name, pronouns, and the country that you're based in? Hi, I'm Zoe. Um, I identify as she and her. Uh, I'm a marine biologist from the UK. Um, I've worked mainly in the Indian Ocean with sea turtles and I'm trying to be as sustainable as possible. Fabulous. Well, welcome Zoe. Thank you for introducing yourself. We are looking forward to chatting to you today so much. Um, could you just give us a quick overview about what it is that you do and your key interest in conservation? Yeah, so um, I've worked mainly kind of in the Indian Ocean. I've worked with sea turtles in rehab, conservation, research, um, science communication. Yeah, at the moment, I'm kind of landlocked in the UK, working as a lab technician, but I'm kind of raring to get back out there and into the marine world. I absolutely cannot wait to just get into this episode with you Zoe and hear all of your adventures and the different places you've worked the different projects you've worked on but before we do that we do have a very short game that we'd like to play with our guests just to settle you in it's a really quick fire round of a couple of questions to keep you on your toes and for us to get to know you are you ready I'm ready (laughs) okay so what's something you're grateful for today Oh, um, today I'm grateful for, I'm going to see some old friends later. <laughs> oh, that's always lush and yeah, yeah. sounds like a nice day. <laughs> Would you rather be a dung beetle, a mayfly or a cockroach? A cockroach, <laughs> weirdly. That's what I say. <laughs> I absolutely hate them to my core, but <laughs> some of them can fly and they're just kind of indestructible, aren't they? They're survivors. Yeah, you've mastered evolution, you know, top of the game. I mean, that's a pretty decent reason to want to be a cockroach. (laughs) And (laughs) finally, is there something that you love that has absolutely nothing to do with conservation? Um, I love crochet. (gasps) Me too! (laughs) I'm currently making a jumper in the middle of summer, but I really enjoy it. I find it so calming and it's just nice wearing stuff you've made. Totally agree. Where has been making a jumper since last summer? <laughs> How far have you got with your jumper, Hannah? Uh, as far as I was last summer, <laughs> which is 
I think I finished all this. No, I didn't finish the arms. I finished all of the actual panels and started sewing it together. What I realized no, is I hate sewing. You could make sewing. it a sweater vest and just leave it there. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, it's like a cardigan jumper. So oh, yeah. Yeah, maybe yeah. not. <laughs> <laughs> it's really long. It, it would be super cozy. But maybe maybe I'll have it in time for, you know, finishing the PhD and just spend the whole winter wearing it. Yeah. Because that's what, you know, jumpers are for. <laughs> I think that's what you should do. <laughs> Whereas the last thing I crocheted was, looks like a loofah, but it's actually oh. just a dog toy. <laughs> I've been making the loofahs too recently. Right, okay, let's get back on yeah, the track. <laughs> I'm quite happy we're talking about what you what you've been making. So for episode, for season two, we're asking our guests about sustainable swaps. So Zoe, I know you've got you're quite into sustainability, but what if you had to name one, what is your favourite sustainable swap? Um my favourite is definitely like shampoo bars. Um, and conditioner bars I just feel like what's not to like like you can take them on holiday with you and you're not carrying around like a litre of liquid Um, (laughs) you can put them in your hand luggage they last for ages they usually smell really good Um, they're just a bit more expensive but they last longer so yeah I think they're really good Yeah, Zoe, both Hannah and I are shampoo and conditioner bar converts. And I think once you kind of go into that world, you can't easily come out of it. It took me a while to find the right one for my hair and the hardness of my water now that I live in the south of England. But once you nail it, once you've gone through that journey and found the one for you, I think it's very hard to use anything else. It really is. And finally, we do always ask our guests, how they get wild about conservation so Zoe how do you get wild well I love open water swimming um I'm totally addicted to it after lockdown like I love swimming and obviously the gyms were closed yeah so I was like well let's go in nature's pools and you just feel amazing when you come out and yeah I just absolutely love it you're a braver woman than I I can't it's too cold (laughs) it is definitely cold but you get used to it and but I'm a fair weather swimmer you know, once September's here, I'm not, I'm not touching it. <laughs> Whereas I'm Hannah going. has been in ice ice water up in Scotland. I don't know how you do that. It was amazing. <laughs> <I didn't laughs> <dive once. laughs> it was amazing. It was, I think it was very much the adrenaline kicked in <laughs> because we were reflecting back and when we were swimming in the sea, come like the spring, that felt colder than when we went ice swimming but I don't know if it was just like the adrenaline side of things I just um, think you lost some yeah. brain cells when you went into the ice and you forgot how cold it was <laughs> because I just wow. don't I just don't <laughs> accept that it's colder in March than it is in the middle you had to break ice Hannah not okay it's not okay well actually we did it because someone had already broken it for us just <laughs> but no um I did my first solo edinburgh swim last night in my new bacato bataco i can never remember oh. the actual yeah one of those <laughs> what are one of yeah, those the seal one it's, no, it's a secret <laughs> yeah if you know you know <laughs> well now i feel excluded from this group cool that's fine uh no they are um swimwear that is made from reclaimed plastic so it's all recycled plastic and then it gets made into swimming costumes but oh my god the designs they're so beautiful um from a job that I recently just finished up 
they uh, kindly was one of my leaving presents. Oh, lovely. Voucher to get my own. Uh, so I got a seal one and the seal, there's just seals and kelps all over it. But also some money went to the seal sanctuary, I believe it was. One of the seal rescue services. That's so know. wholesome. Yeah. I'm now like a <laughs> seal in the sea. Officially a selkie. <laughs> Officially a selkie. That should be a whole new Instagram, not that you've got enough. Right. Zoe. <laughs> You're here today to talk to us not about cold water, but about warm water creatures. Turtles, you've already mentioned rehabilitation, conservation, research, science communication, which is absolutely loads. I'm going to take you back to the beginning now. Can you tell us what primarily got you into conservation? I'm going to give the generic answer of I've always loved animals, but I really have. Um... Like, <laughs> I used to have all the Beanie Babies. I used to save up a pound a week because that was my pocket money. And then after five weeks, I could go to the Beanie Baby shop and pick out a Beanie Baby. And I have a massive collection of them in my loft. And I just always loved animals. But I didn't really know kind of what to do with it, you know. It was just like I knew I loved mm-hmm. it and I knew I wanted to help. But I didn't know how. Mm-hmm. Um you know, you just thought, oh, I'd love to be one of those people doing conservation in the rainforest. I don't know what, I just want to be there. <laughs> and then um, when I was at school and I was applying for uni, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I wasn't applying. I just felt a bit lost, really. Um, and then, you know, Operation Wallacea. Yeah, uh, we did that with school, which I was, which was very, uh, very lucky that I got to do that. So I, I was working at the time and we were fundraising um, and I got to go to Indonesia and I saw real life people working with animals <laughs> as a career. And I was like, yes, I want to do this. It's not just David Attenborough. There is other people. Um, so as soon as I got back, I applied for uni. And then I was there within a week. Wow, that yeah. sounds like <laughs> such a whistle stop situation to get to university. <laughs> it was intense. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I was going to say, so I have also been to Indonesia. So I'm going to guess you were in the Wakatobi and Sulawesi. Yes. Yeah. Wakatobi and Sulawesi. Yeah. It was was that like the point of, oh, I like the ocean or had that already kind of appeared? Um, No, I was kind of more into terrestrial, actually. And I was obsessed with frogs, which I still think frogs are great. But um, <laughs> like all my life, like all my hobbies and whatever have always kind of leaned me towards marine biology. But I never considered it for some reason. I think I just didn't know much about it. I just thought whales and that was it. Um, and then, yeah, going to Operation Wallacea, I kind of learned more about it. And yeah, I just went in that direction kind of accidentally, but it was sort of meant to be. So what is your university career so far? You took this really intense route into it, coming back from <laughs> Indonesia and then applying and being there within a week. How did that, how did your life look after that point? Um. So I, I thought it was quite funny, actually, because all my friends at, uni, at school knew exactly what they wanted to do. And then they all changed at uni and, and everything. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. And then I went to uni and I did zoology and maths, weirdly enough, because I thought maths is a good backup mm-hmm. um, in case it was hard to kind of break into zoology. Um, and then after that, I was like, yes, I really do enjoy zoology and I really don't enjoy maths. <laughs> So I applied for a master's in ecology and conservation. Um, That was, again, a very intense year, but I really enjoyed it. Um, And I got to do Erasmus there too. So I got to live in Prague for three months, which is 
which was amazing. Um, and then after that, um, I got an internship. Um, but I'd love to go back and do a PhD, but they're very hard to get in kind of marine biology, aren't they? Because it's a dream. Every, every PhD in marine biology is kind of a dream. So they've got a lot of applicants and stuff, but I would really like to do one one day for sure. That's super exciting though. And I think it's just finding the right fit as well. And also the fit of the supervisors. So who knows? Maybe maybe you'll find something one day. But um, yeah, I think they are quite heavily applied, especially at the moment with everything that's been going on for the past year or so. So I guess when you were doing all of these different things and realised you hated maths and that <laughs> definitely had nothing to do with sea turtles. Um, so when did the switch happen to like to turtles? Did you see sea turtles when you were in Indonesia? No, actually. So um, so when I was applying for jobs, I was applying for anything and anything. Um, and I saw a marine biologist in a turtle uh, rehabilitation centre in the Maldives. And I was like, oh, I could do that. That's, you know, like, not I could do that, but it doesn't sound bad. <laughs> I'd love to do that. I applied for it. I'd never seen a turtle before in my life. I didn't really know anything about them. Um, and I got an interview and I was like, okay not what I was expecting but let's go with it and I was just so kind of grateful to even have an interview and I was so like enthusiastic and kind of open about how little I knew but how much I was willing to learn Mm. um that kind of came across in the interview and where I was applying at that time that's what they were looking for they wanted someone who was really motivated so the stars just kind of aligned and I got it and I was just when I got the email, I just went downstairs and just started crying to my parents. I was like, I'm going to the Maldives. And I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> but I was super nervous. Um, but yeah, and that's kind of how I got into it. And then I was there and I loved it. And I learned everything I know now there. <laughs> yeah, so Zoe, that's where we met in the Maldives on that internship, yeah. though I did the volunteer coordination side of it. But could you tell us a little bit more about the internship with that charity that you did? Because it was a lot longer and you did a little bit of absolutely everything. So if you could take us through a whistle-stop tour, that would be great. (laughs) That's quite hard to condense it because there was so much uh, to do. Like the um, organisation was a locally run organisation and they kind of gave you a lot of freedom Um, as long as you weren't doing anything that was going to cost the earth they kind of trusted you and your expertise which now that I've worked um, after that is actually a really special thing Mm -hmm. to be trusted with that much responsibility and just to kind of run with it Um, but we had a turtle rehabilitation center um, so we took in turtles that had been kept as pets turtles that had been caught as bycatch or were just kind of sick Um, we did a coral restoration program we ran a school club Um, we would kind of help out with events um, on the island like environmental weeks and stuff you know like beach cleans and and stuff like that Um, we would do tours with the resorts the local resorts we'd also teach them um, what to do if they got uh, nesting turtles on their islands what else did we do (laughs) we did a turtle festival Oh, the clownfish breeding. Yeah. Yeah, we just we did so much. That's like half of my CV is that place because it was a very colourful place to work, really, wasn't it? 
Yeah, it was amazing. And then the volunteer program that was run as well was insane. Yeah. So I I found it really helpful to have that internship and still do reflect back on my time there. And I imagine you're the same. And just to add an extra question to that, what was the most insane thing that you did on that internship that you thought you would never do? Oh, God. <laughs> there was so many. But I remember... <laughs> <laughs> one of the things where I remember just think when you you just kind of check yourself mm-hmm. and I was on the back of a moped that my boss was driving and I had a turtle in a box on my lap <laughs> and like we were driving to the marine centre and there was like a you could see another island from the marine centre couldn't you yeah which made you feel like you were really in the middle of nowhere and I was just looking at this island thinking I never thought <laughs> I would be on the back of a moped holding a turtle in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was mad. It was amazing. Um, <laughs> um, so have you done any other internships aside from the one with um, at our Marine Centre? Well, marine biology is kind of full of internships, isn't it? So I kind of did an internship um, as well with Operation Wallacea where it was more sort of science communication based, but we did collect data too. But we had schools coming out to where we were in the Caribbean and we would um, do surveys with them in the morning and like in-water practicals and stuff like that. And then in the afternoon, we would do uh, lessons and lectures. Um, but then we would also kind of you know, take them around the island and see the cool stuff that the island had too. But that was uh, one of my most challenging jobs, actually, dealing with 18-year-old teenagers the first time being away from their parents <laughs> but it's definitely character building I'm sure for them and for you <laughs> yeah the uh it can always be quite interesting I think people's first time away from home and depending <laughs> where they end up okay so we've covered all sorts <laughs> so far um so just to bring us kind of into the core of our episode about sea turtles for our listeners that have been listening since season one, we have got another sea turtle episode that is episode eight uh, with Abigail Parker from uh, the University of Melbourne. And she covers all about sea turtles and ecotocology. But to give us a good basis to starting this episode, Zoe, what is a sea turtle? <laughs> a sea turtle is an air breathing reptile with a hard shell. Um, they usually live in tropical waters usually um they lay their eggs on sandy beaches but unfortunately most of them are either endangered or critically endangered um and they're really really important in their own way each species and it's really vital that we protect them and just before we get into why we should protect them and some other things sea turtle versus tortoise yes what are the differences (laughs) so you can also throw a terrapin in there too if you wanted to get it (laughs) <laughs> or a freshwater turtle, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. If you if you want to go go for the trifecta, go for it. So a sea turtle. If you're not in the sea, <laughs> if you're in the sea, it will be a sea turtle. But they have flippers, um, which are obviously very easy to spot, and they're a lot more sort of streamlined in shape too. Um, a tortoise are purely on land, so they've got um, like a main feature of them is they've got like feet kind of like elephant feet and their shells are kind of more higher and concave as well um and then terrapins slash um freshwater turtles they have more like claws 
Um, they're usually a bit smaller too, usually. No, I think that was a perfect summary. And also, I spotted something you said there, Zoe. So, kind of how many species of sea turtle are there? And you mentioned they're almost all in warm water. Yeah. So, there's seven species in total. Most of them are in kind of tropical waters. Um, but I think leatherbacks are usually the ones that stray away from uh, warm waters. And they could, I know there were, uh, I think it was a couple of years ago, there was one. Off the, I want to say Portsmouth, which was quite exciting. Um, and uh, But unfortunately, some do get kind of lost as well. And I think we've had some Olive Ridleys around the UK that have lost their way and needed some help. Um, but generally speaking, yeah, they're in the tropical waters. Yeah, we've had leatherbacks again this summer. because um, And there was people concerned that they were lost, but leatherbacks do come to the UK um, and feed on jellyfish, which Ooh. for any wild swimmers are, I think, the bane of our lives. But they bring <laughs> awesome creatures to our straws. So ah, uh, what I would give to see a leatherback turtle in the UK. <laughs> It'd be incredible. Um, when you Google them and like you see people stood next to them when they're nesting, they just look photoshopped because they're just so massive. It just doesn't seem real. They're crazy. Yeah, because leatherbacks are the largest species of sea turtle, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, by quite a way as well. Um, and they're really they're they're kind of individual too because um, they go kind of so deep as well. And because of the name leatherback, their shell isn't as hard um, as the other turtles as well. Not that we should be touching them, but if you did touch them, they're more like leathery than like bone. Yeah. Amazing. And so in our research and our reading, Zoe, we have read about something called the sea turtle lost years. Would you be able to talk us through what happens or what we know about uh, a sea turtle lost years? Because obviously they hatch from a, from the eggs in the beaches and crawl out to sea and then what happens? <laughs> so if you ever see a sea turtle, you'll either see them as a hatchling, which is they're about the size of a ping pong ball, really or as kind of like a larger juvenile and an adult. So you won't really see them within like the first 10 years of their life. And this is called the lost years because nobody, I think nobody really knows for sure what happens to them. And because they're so small, um, when they hatch, you can't really put GPS trackers on them. Um, it can really affect them. And also one in a thousand of them make it to an adult. So if you put an expensive tracker on it, it might not even survive. Um, and, you know, if it gets eaten by something, it's just going to be in the stomach of something else and you're tracking an animal that you don't know. <laughs> um, so they never, um, nobody really knows where they go. I think we assume that they go to kind of open ocean and they kind of, not camouflage, but kind of hide out in sort of like floating debris and uh, seaweed and stuff like that um, so that they're not um, easily easily preyed upon because they're so small. Um, they can just be kind of eaten a, as a bite, especially by larger animals. Um, and then once they're kind of grown up a bit and they're less easy to eat, they kind of come back, well, species dependent, come back to shore um, and kind of feed on seagrasses and sponges and stuff like that. And that's the size that you usually see them where they're about around probably a metre or a little bit less than a metre. Yeah, so if you ever see a turtle that's kind of like a weird size, maybe the size of your hand, that's really special. <laughs> you should tell everybody about it. <laughs> Make sure it's turtle first and not. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, tortoise. So tell everyone about tortoise too. Get excited about anything that you see. Um, yeah. I'm really glad you brought in some of the size comparisons there because we've already, so like kind of the meter size of these adults that are kind of loggerheads, green turtles, those kind of things. And then you've mentioned the leatherback, which is insanely large. So almost like the size of a car and makes it look photoshopped against people. Was there a bigger turtle kind of, or what's the biggest turtle that's ever lived either alive or dead? Like long dead, gone, gone. <laughs> gone, gone. <laughs> so there was, um, I don't, I've never heard anybody say it before, but I think it's pronounced Archelon, uh, which was the largest turtle ever. I can't even imagine what that would have been like said, stood or swimming next to it. But um, I think it was like under five meters long from head to tail and about four meters wide, like including the fins. So an absolute monster, <laughs> really. Um, but that was in like the crustaceous period. So it's long gone now. But yeah, I, I read something, it was like over 2000 kilograms in weight. Oh my gosh. Which is just insane. That's... Can you imagine swimming next to that? Oh my goodness. No, thank yeah, you. I'm just looking at my living room terrified. and I'm like, that's the size of my living room. That's huge. <laughs> Whereas the sea towers that like we've seen, they're quite gentle and calm. And I imagine like the Archelon would be gentle and calm, but something that big is not is not something to be calm <laughs> around, I don't think. Um, no, I'm sure it like scratches on its shell too. <laughs> <laughs> so there are seven species of sea turtles alive today. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. How can you tell them all apart? Um, it's not as easy as you think. Um, and I do see a lot of sort of conservation pages online also still getting them mixed up. <laughs> so, um, it, yeah, some of them are really obvious and some of them aren't. So the leatherback, so obviously you can't really go by size because you've got a leatherback, which is massive, but if it's a juvenile, it could be smaller than another species at that time. Yeah. So you've kind of got to go by colorings and stuff like that. So leatherbacks are like a black, dark gray. Um, and they've got kind of freckles on them that are like pink and white. But um, their shells are really unique. So they've got kind of like lines laterally going down, which no other turtle has. And their colourings are also very unique. Um, so leatherbacks, yeah, are, are the darkest ones, I'd say. Um, green turtles and hawksbills, they often get muddled up, especially because they're usually living in the same areas too. So I like to differentiate them by, I think green turtles have like, mini sunrises on their carapace on their shell um so like each kind of scute like the tile yeah. on their shell it just looks like a little sunrise um hawksbills are more sort of freckly um but they've got the same sort of colorings as green turtles like they're brown and, and beige um and their faces are a bit different too but unless you see them all the time that's not something that's going to be as obvious to you um and then we've got loggerheads, which are a little bit unique, but people still get them muddled up too. But I think they're more generally like a honey colour, like they're, they're a really nice colour. And by the name as well, loggerhead, they've got a massive head compared to their body. But if you can't compare that to another turtle, then you're not going to know that that's a big head. <laughs> but they do have a big head. And they, they need a lot of uh, pressure basically because they love eating crustaceans so they need to have a really strong jaw that's why their heads are so big um and then the last three I've not even seen all of them and I think I would struggle to differentiate some of them 
the olive ridleys and kemp ridleys so they're in like the same genus and they look very very similar and i think some of them you have to literally count like uh, the scutes on their shell to be able to differentiate them if they were side by side but um, they're like an olive green gray color but usually they live in totally different areas that's kind of how it's so much easier to differentiate them so um, the oh the olive ridleys also have a smaller head in comparison but I think olive ridleys are more like Indian Ocean and Kemp ridleys I think are more sort of Atlantic like around America and then lastly, you've got the flatback turtle, which the shell, as I say, is a flatback. But again, if you're not, if you, you haven't got another sea turtle right next to it, it's not going to be obvious that it's it's flat. But they're more are found around Australia. Um, so yeah, depending on where you are as well, you can kind of know what you might be able to see. But most turtles, apart from um, green loggerhead and hawksbill, most of them are kind of deep sea anyway. So you might not, you know, come across them very easily anyway. That's really interesting. And all of those turtles, so do we know how long they live for? And is it comparable between species? Um, I think it is. I think they live like same kind of humans. And I think leatherbacks live longer, definitely. Um, but they're quite interesting because each species has a different age from when they kind of um, start reproducing so hawksbills I think that they're the youngest when they start reproducing and that's 25 so that's a really long time um to have to survive <laughs> in the brutal conditions they live in just to be able to reproduce and I know a leatherback I'm pretty sure it's around 50 years old um which is just mental really but yeah I think leather the, the bigger the turtle I think the sort of older that they are in terms of the species that's really interesting that it's that we have to wait until they're 25 years old before they start reproducing and before we go into anything anything further you've already mentioned it but why are sea turtles so important like they're really cool there's only seven species we see them in awesome places but why do we want to look after them or make sure the species survive um i'll give you two answers so one of them is <laughs> They're really cool. They're really fun. <laughs> They've got uh, such great personalities um, and they're really calming to swim next to and they're really sweet and cute and that. But then the scientific side, the serious answer, is um, each, you know, each turtle um, has its kind of own areas where it's lived and they all eat slightly different things. And that brings something to that ecosystem. And a really interesting thing too is that they're a marine animal but they're also really important for terrestrial um, environments too because they nest on the beach the all the broken egg uh, cases will go back into the environment um, a lot of turtles won't even make it to the ocean which is sad but it's food um, for like seabirds and um, even things like I think it's like jaguars and stuff in South America even they eat turtles that are nesting so they kind of bring something to both environments um, and they, they also help kind of keep the coral reefs healthy. They're such um, like a important species that uh, what, what you call an umbrella species. So conserving them, you conserve everything else underneath them. And that's such a wide range of habitats um, that, yeah, they're just really important for our ocean in general, as well as being just really great. <laughs> 
I think you're right. We are sea turtle fans. It's quite easy for me and you and Hannah to all be like, yep, absolutely. We need to look after the sea turtles. <laughs> um, so let's take a slightly different question. What is your favourite sea turtle fact, if you have one? You can have many. I don't mind. <laughs> um, one thing that I like talking about and showing people is their a picture of sea turtles esophagus, which is sounds a bit gross, but hear me out. So obviously when they eat, they are in water. Um, and if you've ever seen a sea turtle eat, they're not very uh, clean eaters. And it kind of comes out of their nose and out of their mouth. Um, so they're very lucky that they don't eat on land because it would be a mess. Um, and their esophagus is basically like soft, what feels like cartilaginous spikes. And they go down the throat so basically let's say the turtle's eating a jellyfish it will go down really smoothly but um if it goes back the spikes stop it from coming back up same as how um valves like in your veins and your arteries it stops the blood going the other way it works in the same way but yeah because they've always got kind of water flowing in and out of their stomach it just stops them basically eating something and then it coming straight back up but if you look at a picture of it, it just looks like alien. It's it's amazing. Yeah, I think turtles are certainly an intriguing <laughs> set of animals uh, with how weird something can be. Um, because you have <laughs> mentioned how long it takes the sea turtles to reach sexual maturity and therefore kind of all of those threats and they're having to get to these ages of like between nine and 40 to 50 years to even potentially have offspring. So what are some of the main threats that sea turtles are facing, both naturally or anthropogenically? And maybe we could go for a threat and then like explore that and let's go that way. Okay, so there is obviously a lot, especially mm. now that uh, humans are kind of taking over the planet. Um, so naturally, you know, you've got your predators, you've got um, your marine predators, which is sort of when they're like straight from hatching sort of any sort of fish not any sort of fish but like jackfish and stuff like that uh, are there waiting um and can kind of eat a turtle whole and then obviously when they get older it's stuff like sharks and and whatnot um but then they've also got predators on land too so you've got a lot of uh birds that rely on them but unfortunately in a lot of places you've got like stray dogs and stray cats um which also prey on them which is frustrating because they're not kind of part of that ecosystem so they're taking something, obviously it's not their fault, but they're taking something really important um, when they could be getting uh, food elsewhere if um, kind of it was managed properly. Um, humans are obviously a big one. Um, they fall under both categories of natural and man-made. Um, and then you've also just got things like um, rough seas as well that can kind of push them off, uh, push them off their course of migration and, and send them to places like the UK um, and the uh, water temperature as well they can get sort of cold stunning and um, you get a lot of turtles around like Florida and the Middle East that uh, are just sort of floating there and they've just been sort of stunned by the cold water as they're reptiles they can't maintain their body temperature um, and they basically just need warm water and a, a bit of love a bit of TLC so and then they'll be back on their way <laughs> Well, the man-made ones have a very long list. Um, so I'll go for humans in general. <laughs> it's 
straight away. So humans in terms of natural predators, um, humans are natural predators of sea turtles. There's a lot of indigenous communities that eat turtle and have done for centuries. And that's totally fine. Like it seems like it's wrong because for us, they're so cute and, you know, how could you ever do that? But, you know, it's an easy meal that's got a lot of fat in it as well. Um, and there used to be so many turtles that it's it's not a problem. However, you've got um, humans now eating turtles at an unsustainable rate. Um, you've also just got things like tourism. So a nesting beach that was once completely dark and quiet and all we had was the moonlight and the stars is now a hotel chain that's got cars and motorbikes and the lights are on all evening. Um, that can really really affect literally everything about their reproduction um yeah so the beach development um I, I think everybody saw the David Attenborough planet earth where the turtles were like going down the drains and stuff like that and unfortunately it's very real um pretty much everywhere where they nest there's some sort of light pollution now um which is frustrating because it could so easily be um stopped uh you can get just red light bulbs would completely help and change the situation and you can also get special light bulbs that I think are white light but they've done something to them which means that turtles can't see them as well um so there's just that's what's most frustrating is so many things that could be so easily changed um but they're, they're just not yeah um you've also got the fishing industry which is a whole thing um so I've been volunteering with a charity called Fish Free February. And if you go on their website, there's so much about the fishing industry and how it affects the marine environment, because it's just in so many ways. And me and Lexi saw it firsthand just in bycatch, you know, like um, the Maldives don't use fishing nets at all, but they used to suffer the most in terms of ghost gear, which is um, fishing nets that have basically been lost and are just floating around. So they would come from places like Oman, Pakistan, India, Thailand. They would wash through the Maldives. And if you're a turtle in the open ocean and you want to go and breathe, you want, if there was a bit of shelter that you could ha take a breath, you, you would choose that area, you know, so you're less open. So they often go there, take a breath. And there's also sort of other stuff that might be already caught in there and dying and, and is an easy meal or just fish using that for shelter as well, which would attract them. And then they just get caught. And then they can be there for weeks and months, just caught in, in this net and it can snowball as well. Like when I was in the Maldives, there was a net that got found that had a whole staircase in it. Yeah. It, like it was mental. And if you're a turtle dragging that along, you can imagine how it would just sort of cut through your skin. Um, but by bycatch as well, you know, just getting caught in a net by accident. And if you breathe air rather than breathing through water, if you're not getting that breath in a stressful situation, you're so much more likely to drown. And that's the same for, you know, dolphins and whales and, as well. And <laughs> you've also got poaching, which includes poaching to eat and the pet industry. You know, a lot of Maldivians, for example, had a pet turtle that they would just get off the beach put it in a plastic water bottle, fill the plastic water bottle from tap water, which is not salt water, and then keep that. And then they'll be like, why is my turtle sick? And then it's like, because you're not looking after it properly. 
and you know what they're going to do with a 50 kilo turtle anyway when it grows up I think there's more than that but yeah I think you've done a you've done a very good job of summarizing some of those things and I think yeah it's really difficult to hear because the natural impacts that we will have to kind of cope with anyway like the getting cold stunned if you've gone a little bit too north or if there's an event or nests and turtles getting impacted by storms those are things that are a bit like okay this is gonna happen it's fine but then here in in such a kind of succinct way all of the anthropogenic impacts is really difficult to hear especially when you say there are options like we have the technology now to be able to understand what's impacting these animals and we can use red light bulbs or there's even like I didn't know there was a new type of light bulb that's white light that Mm. impacts turtles less and the fact that like with the ghost net problem like Hannah's face was a little shocked at the fact that there was a whole staircase but if you think (laughs) about that it's just if something's massive in the ocean and animals are being attracted to it it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and it is just a little it's trap it's an absolute trap it's a booby trap for animals and it's one of those where it's like if people just didn't throw their nets overboard because sometimes things are going to get broken sometimes things get lost we all understand that like we said before you sometimes will accidentally drop litter when you're out on a walk if you can try and pick it up but sometimes things are accidents and that will happen in the fishing industry but the ocean isn't an infinite resource it's not just going to handle it on its own and it is stuff like like you say the bycatch problem and the ghost net problem that really really gets to me I think (laughs) that I really struggle with especially when there's alternate options where we can think a little bit more holistically about how to ensure our world kind of survives I think that's really fascinating what you're saying Zoe about the impact there and the fact that in the Maldives they're not using these types of fishing nets because for them a lot of the fishing industry in the Maldives from what I've read about is artisanal it's small-scale fisheries it's fisheries to support their local communities and food for their families whereas what's actually happening is their environment's being impacted by discarded fishing gear that's coming from other places and we hear this again and again about rubbish washing up on the shores of countries where the rubbish isn't originating from or you know the fishing gear coming from somewhere else and impacting these small-scale communities their actual livelihoods and all of that kind of thing so I think that's really worth like really driving home how there are people that need the sea to survive but there are people that are by dumping things in the ocean contributing to the degradation of the community of the seas but also the communities that rely on them as a result and yeah I think that's so fascinating and you're right staircase I was like is this a code <laughs> word for something <laughs> it was a staircase. <laughs> like, what? I think you're right though you need to look at the ocean as one resource we call it our world yeah, ocean and now and there's been mm. science and papers being written about the tragedy of the commons and how we all need to protect the resources that we have and the whole world needs to look at what we do have, not just the stu- not just the ocean, but everything that we have terrestrially as, as one resource that we all need to look after, but also use. I think it's really difficult. It's a really difficult problem. Education is the, you know, the way because yep. most people in the world are nice people and 
aren't trying to ruin everything around them, but they just don't know. They just think, oh, if I put this in the sea, it will go somewhere. Mm. But also, it's not also that, like, sometimes it's just bad planning. (laughs) So when I was in Amman, it was, um, we had a small, uh, like, I mean, a very small fishing village right next door. And, you know, they had nets out all the time. And they also had um, big sort of metal cages, I forget what they're called now, but it's basically the fish go in, but they can't get out. And they're a big metal dome. And then they've got obviously a buoy attached. So they know where it is and they can go and retrieve their trap and all the fish are in there. Um, And then the nets are just kind of laid out and they can be there for like a week. And we always knew when there was a storm coming and the nets weren't always brought in. So it's not that they were dumping it in there. It's just that they hadn't retrieved it in time. But you kind of know in a storm that something your net's probably going to get damaged or something. And, um, you know, with the pots as well, it was a vicious cycle of, okay, let's say that there was a, a big storm and the boy got lost and they mm. didn't know where their trap was. The trap would stay there. So the fish would get caught in there. They would starve. They would die. That's bait. More animals go in there to have a look, to eat, and then they get trapped. Um, and one thing that we would when I was working there that we were trying to do was try and make like a biodegradable trap door so that the fishermen didn't have to change their ways they could put their pots out and if they got lost or they forgot about them or the storm came they didn't know where they were something would biodegrade so that the fish could get Mm -hmm. in or out and it was basically just a metal cage in the water Mm. doing nothing um so that was one of the plans that we had anyway um, but one day, one of the pots washed up on the beach with a whole loggerhead turtle in it. And I do not know how it got in there. It was, I don't know if it was sort of dead and they used it as bait and then it bloated and washed up or if it got in there itself. I don't know, but it was like an adult one and it was quite shocking, really. Um, but but yeah. That was a bit of a tangent. No, it's a really good tangent. So, and a really good idea to have a biodegradable door because it is working with people having this multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary approach where you hear all of the stakeholders' opinions. So people that are involved, you want to listen to everybody and come up with the best solution financially and let's be honest, emotionally that people can be bothered to do. And I think something like that as a biodegradable part even if it's a hinge to that door would make sense to me so how far did you get with those plans can I ask um, so this season of man of uh very temperamental and we had storms quite often but I don't know whether that was just when I was there because I think they do have them a lot but when I was there we had a lot a lot so I kept trialing it out and then my experiment would just get washed away and I was just like Oh man, I've got to start again. So I would just, I, I didn't do like a big uh, trap, but I was just, I was trying to just test out cheap materials basically. So all free materials. So I was using even sort of like stems off plants and uh, we used like a natural rope. We used loads of different things and I was um, put them in a water in like a little frame with a plastic bottle attached. It was like in, uh, like floating in the water, if that makes sense. And we did identify it, but then like a good, it was the rope that we were going to use because it was also very cheap. And we had loads of it where we were working, but then traps themselves were kind of woven. Mm. 
they're like a grid that's woven so when i when i did get a trap like i found an uh one that was abandoned i cut it out but then it kind of all came apart so making a trap door for that was actually quite difficult but most fishermen i like to think do love yeah. the ocean and they love their job and they do want to help so if we do have a legitimate way that they can help then i think they would be on board with it most of the time they you know they love even if they are catching big sharks and stuff they love it and they're excited to go and do it and they don't want to take all the fish out of the ocean but they just it's a sport for them and they you know they yeah. like it so if they could help i'm sure i'm sure they would yeah know? but i think it's really interesting to hear that story of the coming up with a solution do, doing the innovation trying the inventions figuring out the right material trying to see how that would then work within the industry that you're trying to change I think it's a really interesting story to share even though there's nothing come from it yet the steps that you've made in a man to be like to get people on board to say that you're trying something I think that is invaluable and that's something that I just want to thank you for sharing <laughs> Mm. I know in, uh, I think it's uh, Pembrokeshire or Portsmouth, somewhere beginning with P, they're trying biodegradable trapdoors. But, you know, it's a lot different having something like that in the UK where there's a bit more funding mm. for it and uh, also sort of probably policies for it. Um, whereas in Amman, in a random fishing village, it's really got to be cheap and it's really got to work. Like having something expensive and biodegradable is not going to make a difference because it's not yeah. going to be accessible for you're them. absolutely right um when we were in the Maldives at least because I can talk about that a little bit more you mentioned people having sea turtles as pets so you know we'd, we'd see some of these local people take maybe one or two hatchlings when they saw them crawling along the beach and think cool this is really cute this is tiny this is going to be adorable potentially or at least that's what I would think um and then they take them in but then then what would happen how did we know that they were keeping them as pets did people do a 180 and try and put them back in the sea you've already mentioned a rehab program do you want to talk us through this whole pet situation yeah so um like with anything it's it's a complex thing to talk about and I can kind of put it in two groups I think so you've got the people who would raid a nest um for a profit and then you've got the people who want to have a pet for their child um, and also think that they're helping. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think you've got two kind of categories of that. So one's like, yeah, they just want to make money and the other's just like a bit a bit of ignorance, basically, which is not, it's, you know, it's not their fault. Um, but, you know, they would get a turtle and they'd, you know, take it home because, you know, you live on a small island. You, they don't have dogs or anything there. It, Having a pet, you know, you can't just go and get a nice parrot or anything. So, <laughs> um, obviously, getting a tank and stuff like that is not possible. So you'd have like big water bottles, and they cut the top off, and they just put it in. Uh, most of them would put it in tap water, and then they would come in. Some of them would realize that what they were doing was wrong, and would say like, "I didn't know. Someone told me." can you take it off my hands? Like, I'm really sorry. Um, and that's fine. And then other people would be like, my turtle's sick. I don't know what to do with it. And the water would be brown and the turtle would just be floating in it. Like, it's clearly got some sort of infection. It's not been looked after very well. But then also we would get turtles that were like at least one or two years old and fine and healthy. Um, and people had actually been looking after them quite well. But they, that's not the point. <laughs> they shouldn't be doing it. So the main reason why they shouldn't be doing it is um, 
because it's really important that the hatchling makes its way from the nest to the sea by itself. Um, it ingrains in it where it can, if it makes it from the nest to the sea safely, it knows that that's a safe place to nest in the future. Um, so it kind of ingrains where it is in its in its brain. I'm, I'm not sure how. I think it's something to do with the magnetic poles or, or something like that. I don't think anybody really knows, but they nest in the same region that they're born anyway. Um, and it's also really important for muscle development as well because it's such a hard journey for them. It's actually a really vital journey. So it looks like they're struggling, and they are, but it's important that you don't lift them and help them unless, of course, they're stuck or going in the wrong direction. Um, so although people have had turtles and they've kept them and they're healthy and they're fine to be released, they can still give back to their ecosystem in that way, but they can't necessarily reproduce or find a place to nest. I think that's a bit unknown about whether or not they can. Um, yeah, so we also did um, a survey when we had turtles getting handed in and it was in the local language as well, which they knew that I didn't understand. So it's kind of like a no judgment mm -hmm. questionnaire because I'd have no idea what they were writing. Mm. Um, and we kind of <laughs> asked them, like, what do they know about turtles? Uh, did they know that some of them poisonous? Have you ever eaten it? Um, if not, why not? Um, would you ever eat it again? Um, you know, and stuff about pets. And most of it was just that they didn't know. And they, they you know, like I said earlier, most people are just trying their best. And if they knew it was bad, then they wouldn't do it. Um, and it's just about education. Um but I think the NGO on that island has made such an impact that most people know that mm -hmm. it's not good. And I think some people, it can also be a bit taboo, like you kind of hide it from each other, which is kind of good. Mm. Um, but yeah, education is just the main way to kind of prevent this kind of stuff happening. No, that's super fascinating, I think, in terms of, yeah, the actually that some of them have survived. Obviously, like we said, not good idea to take a sea turtle as a pet at all. But it's really fascinating that some of them have kind of done so well. And then but then obviously there's the issue of you put the turtle in the sea and it probably doesn't know where to go. Because I remember being told that like little Duracell batteries that they need to get their like yeah. their jiggle on and then jiggle down to the sea. Because if they don't jiggle down to the sea, when they get to the sea, they go, oh, my God, what happened? And they're like in shock. Um, and yeah, because I was about to ask, is there any projects you know about that maybe do do that and like take the hatchlings on and grow them up to a certain size to try and reduce predator risk? But obviously you've kind of reduced one issue there and subsequently introduced another one by trying to interfere at the human level, yeah. as we always do. I think it's a bit unknown about whether or not that's a good thing because turtles take so long to be able to reach sexual maturity. It's not just something you can study in a year or something. It's a very much a long-term study. Mm -hmm. um, but I know that there is some places that kind of take advantage of the unknown, if that makes sense. Like I know there's a lot of um, sanctuaries, I say, in... Uh, quotation marks um like especially in like Sri Lanka and Bali where they just have basically like a sea turtle farm and call it conservation um and they just take the hatchlings and uh like wait until they're older but they're not kept in the best places you can go and literally swimming with them in their tanks and it's usually very shallow water and they're biting each other etc um but then at the same time you've got well are those areas have they got a lot of poachers in that area anyway? Is this the best solution for mm. what they've got? You know, like, it's very easy for me to sit here and go, that's wrong. 
Um, but if they didn't have that, would they just be eaten or sold in the pet trade and then never actually make it to the ocean at all? Where even if they can't reproduce mm. because they, they don't know where to go, at least they can have their input environmentally. So it's it's a, such a complex issue and it depends where you are, the settings, the culture. It's, it's, it's so difficult to generalise. Mm. So on that note, just thinking about you know doing what you can in the place and like we said some things work for some places some places they don't work at all and you think why are we doing this what can humans do to ensure these different species survive um so obviously it's just being conscious of your environmental impact I know it feels like you can be a drop in the ocean but whenever I feel like a drop in the ocean I always remember about a turtle that we had that was caught in one cement bag and um, her fin got amputated and she spent like a year in rehab. And I just think if that one cement bag didn't make it to the ocean, then Luna would still have two fins. <laughs> so I just think, you know, everything that you do is is good. But then at the same time, you don't want to put too much pressure on yourself. because It's very overwhelming. And it is more of the system we live in, which is the problem and not your individual impact. So I think taking part in campaigns and voting for environmental focused um, policies is really important. But in terms of like tourism and stuff like that, I think with any animal, if you're wanting to go into India and see tigers or um, go and see elephants in Thailand, you really need to research because things might look great because for you, you -hmm. think a happy animal looks a certain way, but that's not necessarily true. and you need to make sure that you know what is good and what's bad. And you need to make sure that your hard-earned money is going somewhere good. Because mm-hmm. um, you've got the right attitude and you wouldn't want to fund the wrong thing. So, for example, if you wanted to swim with turtles or see turtles hatching, you need to do some research and figure out what is a good, what am I expecting in a, in a good way, you know, and look at reviews and stuff like that. And then you make sure that you're giving your money to the right people with the right motive uh, with the right goals yeah I think you're absolutely right like if we do have the luxury and the money to be able to go on holiday to some of these places and we do want those experiences because they are awe-inspiring and they do spark what we all have which is a love of the natural world and an understanding about these conservation issues then taking the time beforehand to make sure you're doing it as well as you can is will pay off in the long run environmentally um so I want to take a little bit of a different um track now with you Zoe I want to talk a little bit about sea turtle rescue and rehabilitation because this is a lot of what you did in the Maldives and I saw you do it which was pretty awesome but I think it would be quite interesting for our listeners to hear (laughs) what that looks like so you've already mentioned that these sea turtles came to us through people keeping them as pets or through products of bycatch or or, um, through ghost nets or whatever the case may be. So can you tell me what a sea turtle rehab looks like and what the end goal is? Rehabilitation is quite broad, really. Um, So where we were, we had the pet, we had turtles coming in from who were kept as pets. So a lot of them needed salt water rehabilitation because they were just kept in tap water desalinated tap water which is the most important part um so they basically needed to be slowly put back in salt water so this was like 
having different ratios of fresh water to salt so they would get slowly used to it and not to overwhelm them, which took a long time, actually, like over two weeks for a, a tiny turtle. And it wasn't always successful either. Sometimes they would die um, in the rehab. Some of them would also, uh, we had one turtle called, I think we called it pig. Pig, yeah. I don't remember why but um it was healthy on the surface in terms of it didn't have any infections or anything but because it was kept with other turtles in a small tank the other turtles had eaten its fins and it just had like like half the size of a normal fin but it could still move around and it was fine um so that was just kind of making sure it wasn't going to get an infection and it was left alone so it wasn't going to get bullied um and then but the more kind of tricky stuff was um, we used to get adult turtles coming in, adult olive ridleys mainly. And in my first month, we got our first adult olive ridley, which was a whole experience because <laughs> we had one called Nima. And basically she'd been caught in a net and um, one of the fishing boats had found her and called us. Um, again, just shows earlier what I was saying, mm. you know, most fishermen are actually passionate about their environment and they wanted to help and they knew who to call and they tried their best and they did great. Um, but it's really important about how you save them as well because they pulled the net up. I think they severed the fin a bit more and then the whole fin needed to be amputated. So we had this turtle that was about 25, 30 kilos and we, did, we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't have the space for a turtle this big. We'd never had a turtle in this condition before. Yeah, we got her from a fishing boat and we basically had to do the best that we can. So we there was one vet in the country um, and she lived two hours away. So we had a lot of phone calls with her of how to give injections, how to give fluids, um, how to treat the wound. And somehow we managed to do it and keep her healthy. Um, but then you come across something called buoyancy syndrome. So when a turtle gets sort of well there's many reasons it can happen but one reason is the turtle can be so stressed that their their body basically fills up with air and they float which kind of stops them drowning which is great until Mm -hmm. they can't get rid of that air um so if we release them when they're healthy but they're buoyant they would just float and they wouldn't be able to eat and they would just starve um so nima was very very buoyant what we call a bubble butt um, so she was healthy, had a great appetite. She just needed sort of the physio part of a rehab. Um, so we would sort of take her swimming and try and train her and she would get lower and then she'd get higher again. And it can be also due to things like pneumonia and maybe a puncturing of the lung and stuff like that. But for her, I think it was just the stress. Um, but we used to get, after that, we had 16 turtles that year alone and we'd never had any before. And they were coming in and they were massive and we were having to totally change the way that we do things um and we were also getting large turtles that weren't caught in nets but were just sick um so for us you know we had to learn how to be extremely mm-hmm. hygienic in terms of like clinically how to kind of get the medicine and how to get clued up and all that which is stuff that we'd never really had to before um and also change the diet of everything because we had a different species now and the rehab program completely changed but it was so rewarding and you get a turtle come in who's looking very sad and very poorly and then once they started to get healthier their personality would come out and they would all be so different and I just I don't know if you agree Lexi but I think they just remind me of dogs 
Yeah, yeah, I see exactly what you mean. I don't, I don't know how, but they're just, yeah, yeah. They have, they definitely have personalities. The turtles, because I was on nesting turtle projects, and they're like, oh, "Why am I here?" All of them, they used to these big size, and they're like, "I don't want to be here anymore. Go away, leave me alone." <laughs> we used to joke. They're very dramatic. I mean, I would be too if I had to pull myself out onto a beach with loads of weirdos trying to measure me. <laughs> Get off of me, I'm giving birth. <laughs> like, this is hard, leave me alone. <laughs> but also, like, Zoe and you and I used to take some of the turtles out for their swimming rehab, which sounds ridiculous, but we'd take turtles out into the open ocean with food so that we could teach them that diving in a deeper sense was better, but they'd still have this buoyancy syndrome. So they'd still float up, but it was kind of trying to get them used to diving again and seeing how their buoyancy was. So we'd kind of look after them and keep them engaged with treats for lack of a better word it was just smaller bits of food and honestly like when you say they remind you of dogs it, it's that that comes to my mind when we're like okay we just need to get them back if you put a treat in front of their in front of their face and they'll come back to you <laughs> and we had them on a lead as well yeah <laughs> when we first picked them up we had them on a lead because we were so paranoid that they would float off but then after we did it for a while we were like they're not going anywhere and if you could go for a swim and then you'd look up and like, oh, she's just over there. I can see her. And then you go and get her and push her back. And she's trying to bite you and stuff. <laughs> it's basically just kind of getting their strength up as well. Because in a tank, they, they can't really swim far or deep. So it's getting their strength up and also physically trying to force the air out as well. Um, but it was one of the best parts because it was literally like taking a dog for a walk and you'd put the... <laughs> The, the like tuna underwater and it'd be trying so hard to get there and you could see in their eyes they're just focusing on it like they're just so excited to get that food um it was just such a fun part of the volunteer experience as well I think like literally taking a turtle for a swim I just gonna say that's like so amazing and you made me think of another question but then I guess you've got like confounding factors of if they're in these small tanks, their muscles are probably going to degrade because they're not being able to swim or dive. But when you were saying about the reacclimation to salt water, because there is a difference in buoyancy there of like anyone that goes swimming in the sea on their issue float more than in fresh water. Um, and for divers, when they switch between the two, if they've got too much weight on, they'll just sink. Um, so, yeah, I was going to say, is that something as well that you have to try and do that physio side of things to reacclimate them to swimming in salt water because the buoyancy is so different? Or do you not see that because of, you know, everything else going on? Um, so the turtles that we had to um, rehabilitate in for saltwater were literally hatchlings. So they were very small mm. and we would just put them in like a bucket. So the main the main target for them was just um, getting them back to full saltwater. And then after that, they would go in a tank and they would be with us for quite a while anyway. So that kind of side of things would always come later but they if you'd whenever you go over and look at them they were always moving around anyway you know they were constantly <laughs> um swimming and stuff so I don't think their muscles were too bad especially as a hatchling they don't go too deep so I don't think it was too different mm. for them it was probably more the fact that they have lack of waves mm. which um is something that they weren't used to so before we released our turtles we used to um, literally put them in a bucket, wrap them in a towel and swim out to what we had a, a sea cage. Um, so it's kind of like what you see in aquaculture. So we mm. put them in there for like two weeks. So basically they get a nice suntan because they were inside the whole time. They were quite pale mm. and um, the colouring on their shell also works as like 
how our tan works, you know, like it helps protect them from the sun. Um, so they would get a lot darker, so they would completely change in their appearance. And they would also get used to um, just things like rain, um, <laughs> storms and waves in general. And they would be there and they would, there was other fish in the um, sea cage as well. So they'd get used to seeing other animals and there would obviously be just debris floating through and um, sort of algae growing on the sea cage, which they would also munch on. So we would go out every day and bring them their food anyway, but then they would also be munching on just like floating seagrass as well. Um, so it was kind of like a soft release. And then after we knew that they were okay there because they often wouldn't eat for a couple of days with us, but we don't know whether that was because they were eating everything else or whether they were just getting used to it. And then once they were fine, we would release them and we'd know that they're they're strong enough basically to, to kind of make it on their own. <laughs> So do you think there's like these rehabilitation programs for lack of a better word of them, even though I think there's so much more that we did and yeah, each turtle was its own case and we just did what we could with the information that we had. But do you think those, these rehabilitation programs are helping the sea turtle species, despite the fact that we can't do that walk when they're very, very young because they've missed that opportunity because they've been taken from the beach or some of them do come to us and we have to amputate because of the lacerations from the situations they've been in. Generally, do you think they're helping? What we did was helping. I do. I think even the worst ones are helping in some way because when, when I tell people I've worked with turtles and they've been to a mm -hmm. place like that, the first thing they say is, oh my God, I went to an amazing one. I got to hold it and everything and I learned so much and I love turtles now. So although it's not great, it's mm. ignited a passion in someone and they care about them more now. Mm. So mm -hmm. it's not great on paper, but it does still has positive effects on people for sure. And it lasts a lifetime memories like that. So on the whole, I think there's positives to be taken from everything. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the rehab programs that are more like, um, helping turtles that even have lost a limb and might not be as strong. I think it's so important because you're releasing an adult. Um, you know, it takes like one in a thousand hatchlings will make it to being an adult. So when you do have an adult, they're the lucky one. You know, they're the one that's made it. And they need to be, make, we need to make sure that they're still out there, you know, like even if they've got one fin missing and it's going to be a bit harder for them to nest or escape a shark or something. Um, at least they're still contributing to their ecosystem. Um, yeah. Yeah. Zoe, you are amazing. Um, <laughs> I'm just absolutely adoring this chat. These interactions, like we don't, we don't ever want to promote a negative, <sighs> negative interaction is the wrong word, but like an interaction where it's not really for the benefit of the animal. However, recognizing the power that those interactions have because, I mean, all three of us are kind of similar ages. We're the generation that you heard a lot about people going to dolphin shows, people going to whale shows, people going and swimming with dolphins. That ignited a generation. We've learned from our mistakes now. And like you said, you say, say maybe next time, look at these better factors. Think about how, you know, maybe if you don't hold the turtle, that could be better for the turtle. And is there a project that just doesn't do that full stop? But kind of actually in general those interactions and then we've learned from that they're bad but they ignite a passion that can last a lifetime and create a conservationist who will make huge ways in the future and I think we should never put someone down or 
devalue those moments but we should learn from them for the future like we have done now with kind of citations for entertainment and things like that so yeah the fact you mentioned that like oh you're great (laughs) um (laughs) and yeah I guess I was gonna ask you you kind of already brought up some of the data that you did collect while working with those communities um so kind of community perspective on pets and also on kind of turtles as a food source as you said that's got massive roles in culture but because of all the other impacts that you've mentioned on turtles that turtles are at risk and therefore too much pressure from humans can make that worse what other data do you collect and how do you study turtles in general is there other stuff you do other than that or have done I should say (laughs) one of my uh favorite ways to collect data on turtles um is literally just taking a photo so you can track turtles by getting really expensive equipment and sticking it on it and following the data, but this is not really inclusive. Like when we wanted to do that in the Maldives with our turtles, but the tags are so expensive and you have to pay like $10 a day just to receive the data. So if you're a small charity, that's just not feasible. Um, but um, one way is that you can collect data, which I did when I worked with Olive Ridley Project as well, is uh, you take a picture of each side of their face and that works as like their fingerprint. They've got their own individual markings. Some are more obvious than others. Um, like a green turtle is way more obvious compared to an Olive Ridley who's just got one colour, but the skeets are different shapes on their face. Um, but the reason this is so great is because Anybody can get involved. All you need is an underwater camera. So you don't have to be some, you know, professor with, you know, all these qualifications. You can be someone on holiday in your bikini with a snorkel, just taking a picture of something that you love. Um, And you can send it to, there's so many different projects around the world. um, And they are trying to make like a a database for everybody. I can't remember what it's called now, but um, basically all the organizations are coming together. And they're all kind of uploading it onto one um, database so that, you know, we actually know where all these ones are going for all around the world. And it's also great because it's not invasive. You don't have to touch the turtle. You don't have to take it out of the water and put a tag on its flipper and hurt it. Maybe leave it prone to infection. All you can do is just enjoy your moment with that turtle and also contribute to science at the same time. And... Like we used to get some people doing it when I was in the Maldives and also um, in Oman. And when you tell them the turtle that they saw and that it's been seen here and here before, that's super exciting for them. And if we've never seen it before and they're the first one to spot it, that's also really exciting for them. And they go home and be like, oh, my God, we saw this turtle. It was called uh, Luna. Um, It was amazing. She's always seen here or she's not usually seen here. and We saw her. Um, it just has such an amazing impact and there's literally barely any downsides (laughs) so that's one of my favorite ways to collect data on turtles I love the fact that they're now creating a wider global database and people are sharing that knowledge because it is that thing where as we move forward in the world technology is only increasing our connectivity so as conservationists Mm. we need to use that and yeah I think some of the deepest dives I did was to get sea turtle face photos (laughs) which was just amazing but 
because you can't you become obsessed <laughs> you do you do you're like no I've got to get left side right side and top yeah. like that I need to get it if I don't get it, it it's not worth it um yeah. <laughs> like why am I out here if I'm not getting photos and then you realize you have to enjoy your life not just get photos yeah. <laughs> um but yeah I think I think that's a I adored I adored collecting that data and I'm not a photographer at all um but you've mentioned it already a little bit about interacting with turtles positively generally don't touch them but do you have any other hints or tips about people that maybe go into some of these um environments like Mexico the Maldives the Seychelles and stuff and Oman and may see wild sea turtles on their swims how would they positively interact or not interact with sea turtles the most important thing really is don't touch them i know sometimes they're moving so slowly and they're so chilled out it's so easy to just reach out and touch it Um, but you know you could be really passing something on to that turtle and also you don't want to create a positive relationship you don't want that turtle to create a positive relationship with humans because humans as we know aren't trustworthy (laughs) you know most of them you know let's say uh, let's say you're scratching it and it really enjoys the scratch on its shell because their shells are very sensitive and let's say it'll go up to someone or a boat that it sees next time and that boat is someone who likes sweet turtles it's, it's just putting itself on a plate really so it's best to just enjoy it from a distance I think the best the best distance I think was something it was either a meter or three meters but it's very difficult to keep that distance um, especially when you know we said earlier that they have such different personalities that turtle will also move away from you if it doesn't want to be there um so some of them are literally just having a snooze and they don't mind if you come really close um but also I would say be conscious that you might be making it uncomfortable but then again if it is uncomfortable it will just swim away and they're really fast (laughs) when they want to be um so basically I would just say kind of don't touch it give it a bit of space and if you are going to go a bit closer don't just going really fast and scary you know make a slow approach um and yeah just kind of be wary and oh also wear um eco sunscreen that's more for the coral but it's you should anyway (laughs) i think that's a great point of yeah also be conscious of the things that may wash off into your body but yeah i've seen people chase turtles and again like you said it's education um if people haven't had the education it's not really fair to get angry at them if they're mm. not, you know, being responsible. If they have had the education, then maybe not get angry at them, but be very firm and tell them again <laughs> and then get angry at them. Um, but yeah, it's really not fair if you if they just don't know. Uh, so on that point, you mentioned earlier you've done some education projects. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, my gosh. I loved it. So <laughs> when I first planned my first lesson, I was myself I was like oh my god I can't do this I'm so nervous but I do this a lot where I just sign myself up for things and then regret it later um so (laughs) (laughs) we're in the Maldives they used to have a school club called nature club but it had kind of died down and no one had done it for a year or so um and I knew it was really important so I I was like yes we need to do it and then um a school got signed up for it an after school club and I was like okay great and then it came to doing the lesson and I was like why why I'm so scared <laughs> I'm so terrified I don't want to do this anymore um but it was the best thing ever and I absolutely love it so I know I'm biased because I'm teaching about something really cool and the kids wanted to be there it's not like a math lesson where they hate it 
Um, but uh, we were teaching them like something different each week and we'd always end with an activity as well to kind of tie it all together and also cement what they learned that day. So we'd have like a lesson on turtles, a lesson on reefs, a lesson on plastic. Um, and we would also have like local NGOs coming and doing a talk as well. So kind of building that relationship with other NGOs is so important and also giving them a platform as well because a lot of them are just on resorts they don't have the same outreach um so letting them sort of inviting them to your little club is is a great way to help them spread their message too um so the Maldives one was great and we also did a turtle festival as well which was like a as you can imagine a day festival we had loads of education uh, education talks and stalls and um we had a competition where the schools had to make a sculpture out of trash on the beach. And oh my God, did they deliver. They made like massive marlins and turtles and they made stalls. Like some of them made bags out of, out of rubbish and they were incredible. And they were selling them and fundraising for their own nature club and for like their own like, uh, like vegetable patch. Like... Maldivian children are so incredible. Um, and then moving on from them, uh, we also did uh, stuff with the resorts as well. So, you know, a lot of the people who work in resorts aren't from that country. So um, they don't necessarily know the right protocols. Um, not that the people living there always do either, but um, especially with like a change of management all the time, you teach someone one thing and then they leave and then you've got to do it again. So we were teaching them how to rescue turtles, how, what to do with resort, uh, with turtle nesting. Um, and then we would build that relationship with them. And, you know, the resort guests would want to hear about it. And it was kind of a win-win for everybody. Um, and then Operation Wallace here as well, where we had like the school children coming out, which is, I found so important because that's exactly what inspired me um, to start getting into it. Um, and that was really rewarding, especially when you had a, child that didn't want to be there and then by the end of it they were like oh my god I saw a stingray and you're like I knew I would get you to love it <laughs> um, <laughs> and then my last one in Oman um, was again a bit scary um, because I signed myself up for it <laughs> again and um, it was like the first kind of marine thing they'd ever had at that school and they educated the girls and the boys differently but I went to the girls um, and they were so great. They welcomed me in and their English wasn't amazing. So I had to kind of go a bit slower than I did in the Maldives because their English was really good. Mm -hmm. um, but they really enjoyed it. And we made a really great relationship with them because they were asking me, oh, would you come back and just, you know, help with our English lesson and just talk English to them to help them understand accents and stuff. And just having that relationship outside of marine biology is really great because you become respectable they trust you. Um, you're actually bringing something, you know, it's kind of like helping each other out. Um, and it was, yeah, it was just so good. But the boys school, they, they were a bit tougher. I, I didn't have the guts to go there <laughs> because my boss went there and they were just telling him that their English wasn't as good. And they were like, we don't want to hear about it. Why are you here? <laughs> and I was like, I need to build up to the boys school. <laughs> They're a bit scarier. But the girls are really great. And they were, you know, they just wanted to like hold my hand and stuff, which was so cute. Um, oh, I'm happy you had a good experience in the girls' school. Yeah, mm -hmm. they were lovely. Yeah, and they always gave you like cake and stuff as well, which was nice. 
So you're absolutely right. And one of the reasons we wanted to start this podcast to begin with was because I think education is so important. And we saw it firsthand in the Maldives, just the passion that had been ignited in some of these children, let alone the amazing things they could make out, make out of plastic in some of these exhibitions that they did was insane. Um, but I really want to thank you for coming on and talking to us today and sharing all of your stories and your anecdotes and everything that you have. You've been a wonderful guest so far, but I did want to say, do you want to cover anything else that we haven't covered? Because I realise we've probably rummaged through your brain for long (laughs) enough. Um, But if there's anything else you want to mention or talk about. So I want to kind of touch on a bit about what I've learned as a conservationist. So when you start out, you are it's very easy to point the finger and say you know like when I went to the boys I was like they shouldn't be eating turtle they shouldn't be keeping them as pets like it's very easy to be like you shouldn't be doing that you shouldn't be doing that and then when you get a bit older and a bit wiser you realize that things are a lot more complex than just people want to do bad things people generally don't want to do bad things and it's a everything is such a complex issue so for example eating turtle I just used to be like no it's a terrible thing nobody should do it um however when I've traveled a bit and spoken to people and learned about culture I know that it's not as easy to just say you shouldn't be doing that like there's indigenous communities in Australia um literally all around Southeast Asia who have relied on uh turtles for food and they are not the people to blame like it's not a great thing to do now but they are not the problem Mm-hmm. The main problem is just how things are at the minute, like basically capitalism in a nutshell. Everything that affects turtles and the environment comes down to um, you know, industry and money and business and improving and you know livelihoods like the fishing industry, people's livelihood. They can't just stop. They need to do it. And I think conservation is a lot about understanding that not everybody's priorities are the same as yours. Um, people generally want to do what they can, but they can't. Um, and it's just sort of hearing things from different sides and just trying to find some middle ground um, and just be a bit understanding because when you start out, it's just very easy to yeah point the finger. Um, and I think that, yeah, sometimes... <laughs> We should just be a bit more understanding about these issues and that if they were easy to solve, they would have been solved by now. <laughs> yeah, that's my two cents. <laughs> wow. Honestly, that was, yeah, I think that's a great place to end this episode. And that's a really, really impactful um, thing to summarise on. And I think you worded it so well, Zoe. So Lex, unless you have any more questions. Um, I don't. But thank you so much for having me on. <laughs> it has been wonderful. And yeah, it has been an absolute joy speaking with you today. And I hope everyone has enjoyed listening to you and our listeners. Have a wild day and we'll see you all soon. Bye. Thank you for listening today. As always, we have been Wild About Conservation and you have been awesome. Please leave us a review. We would really appreciate it and we do read them all. To keep exploring with us, drop us an email or find us on our socials. We're on both Twitter and Instagram. All the links are in our description and the show notes. If you enjoy our show and want to support us, then we're also on Patreon. Just £1 a month or 25p an episode will cover our creation costs. And anything above that, we donate to charity. 
thank you to those who are already helping us to keep creating. We will continue to support a charity for season two, and we will let you know who that is in the coming weeks. Don't forget to look out for our next episode next Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And if we're not on that platform, let us know. Most importantly, remember, step outside and get wild about conservation. Bye. Bye. How do you get wild? Watching wildlife documentaries. Wildflower painting. Diving. Wild swimming. Ocean watching. Rock climbing. Bird watching. Listening to podcasts. Hill walks. Visiting a wildlife charity.